Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're discussing the story of Joseph and the house of Potiphar in Genesis 39, 1-23. We talk about the character of Joseph, an Israelite enslaved in the house of an Egyptian, and the profound vulnerability he experiences at the whims of others, no matter what decisions he makes. And we wrestle with the theology of God's blessing in this text, since Joseph's life seems to go from bad to worse, even while the text tells us that God has blessed him. And at the same time, we recognize the insistence of this text that it is God's blessing that stays with Joseph in all circumstances. God is with Joseph and with us, no matter what. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? Hmm, I'm good. I'm good. They, <laughs> good. Um, uh, okay, they do this weird cheer at the Jewish summer camp that I used to work at on Fridays in particular. Yeah. Today's a Friday. And um, for our listeners who don't, or maybe you don't know, you have two young children. I don't know if you know I what do. day it is. Today's All the Friday. days are one big, long day. <laughs> it's just one day. There's yeah. no day or night. It's just one no. big mush. Mm-hmm. A blur of time. And they do this cheer about like, who's excited? Who's excited? Who's excited? And then you have to say what you're excited about. Oh. And we are having such a cool service at our shoal tonight that I'm excited. We have this um, Ukrainian family who is taking refuge in Atlanta that we've been supporting for a little while, and they are musicians. Oh. And so they're coming to services tonight and are going to offer some music for us. And it's, oh, wow. I don't know. I mean, it's lovely just to have them, but I think it's, they, I mean, I, I, I just selfishly want to hear their amazing music because yeah. I've heard such fantastic things, but it's, it feels especially right, I guess, to give yeah. them a way to offer beauty into the world yeah. and not yeah. like, yes. And also we can give them Costco gift cards and we can do like, right. you know, like, do, yes, all of that. But to be in a position to sort of receive the beauty that they have to put out there. I'm, I'm really excited. I hope, I hope people come. Can you do the cheer? The who's excited cheer? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're supposed to bang on a table. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do okay. my part. And then you're going to have to think of something you're excited about really quickly. Okay. It's going to be your turn. Okay. Who's excited? Who's excited? Who's excited? Who's excited? I'm excited for service tonight. She's excited for services tonight. <laughs> Who's excited? Who's excited? Who's excited? Who's excited? I'm excited for Bible worm. <laughs> <laughs> He's excited for Bible worm. Who's excited? Who's excited? Who's excited? Yeah. Great. That was so predictable. That was... Well, I, <laughs> I don't know. You could have said something crazy. I could have. I could have. It's true. So Bible Worm is where we are. And this week we are in the third week already of the narrative lectionary for this fall and uh, our fourth season of Bible Worm. 
We are skipping rapidly through the Genesis narrative. Last time we were in the Abraham story. This mm-hmm. time we're in the Joseph story. Starting in Genesis chapter 39, we're just going to read all of chapter 39, verses 1 to 23. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that happen between <laughs> the first time God appears to Abraham in Genesis 12 and where we are in Genesis 39. Can you bridge that gap for us in some sort of meaningful way, coherent way? Okay, I will try. Uh, Yes, there's no way to sort of summarize everything that's happened on one foot. But we're picking up, I think it's four generations later. So we've had Abraham, Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and now Joseph is the son of Jacob. One of the 12 sons. Mm -hmm. One of the 12 sons, right. And so... We can just notice that it's taken us over 20 chapters to get here from Abraham. So, and it seems like the pace at which each generation is covered is sort of getting slower and slower. That's true. I never thought about it like that. More and more stories about each one. In each generation, the patriarch has had more than one son. And, well, I should say more than one child. And then I can, we can talk about the son part of it later. And one of those children is selected as the one through which the promise will continue. Right. So the other sibling is the other siblings are not forgotten about. They get some kind of blessing, but they're not the conveyor of this covenant that we've been talking about with Abraham. So you're thinking about Ishmael and Mm -hmm. then Esau. And Esau. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then once we get to this generation, Joseph. There is still a favorite child. It's Joseph. (laughs) Spoiler alert. But at this point, all the the children of Joseph constitute the the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel. And so the the covenant is shared between all of them. That's a really interesting way to think about that, Amy, because, you know, one of the details of this story is sort of a conflict about not this story today, but like the Joseph story is conflict about, well, how actually do we share a covenant. Up until now, it's been sort of like, well, okay, it goes through this person. And now suddenly it's a broader thing and that's going to cause some problems. I, I like that. The whole, yeah, all the, the, I mean, it causes problems in every generation. Like even like in all the, the previous generations where there was sort of like a matchup, there were two siblings and one of them is going to be chosen. It's always been the youngest son who's been chosen, which goes pointedly against the prevalent culture at the time, which was that inheritance passed through the eldest child. But right where our story picks up, Joseph's brothers have thrown him in a pit and left him there, faking his death because they could not abide by the fact that their father loved him best. And he also, Joseph was kind of like a, a jerky kid. like <laughs> Yeah, he knew he was the favorite. <laughs> he knew he was the favorite, and he didn't mind talking about that. He did and that not. did not endear him to his brothers. So Joseph is in a pit. His brothers have told his father that he's dead. His father thinks he's dead. And Joseph is then picked up by passers-by and brought into Egypt. That's my one foot. That what did really I miss? Good. You want to put another foot down? No, I like that. I would have I would have probably had to shuffle back and forth between my two feet to get that out, but <laughs> <laughs> that was really nice. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Yes. 
All right, so we're in chapter Genesis, chapter 39, verses 1 to 23. I'm reading the Common English Bible, and I'm going to start out reading 1 to 6. When Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Potiphar, Pharaoh's chief officer, the commander of the royal guard, and an Egyptian, purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man and served in his Egyptian master's household. His master saw that the Lord was with them and that the Lord made everything he did successful. Potiphar thought highly of Joseph, and Joseph became his assistant. He appointed Joseph head of his household and put everything he had under Joseph's supervision. From the time he appointed Joseph head of his household and of everything he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's household because of Joseph. The Lord blessed everything he had, both in the household and in the field. So he handed over everything he had to Joseph and didn't pay attention to anything except the food he ate. One of the things that surprised me, just actually as I was just reading that out loud, was how many times God is mentioned, the Lord is mentioned in those first few verses. Do you have any thoughts about like, we've got this sort of narrative happening on the mundane level, like he's been thrown in a pit, taken to Egypt and sold, but God is sort of permeating that description. Do you have any thoughts about the relationship there? I mean, I think it's so, you know, I, I think there is a tendency to, to think that either God made something happen or God prevented something from happening. And I love the way that this text, like you're right, God is all up in there. God's presence <laughs> yeah. is with Joseph. Yeah. But God didn't prevent this really terribly bad thing from happening in Joseph yeah. life, Joseph's mm-hmm. life. And it also doesn't say God made it happen. Yeah. You know, which is which is sort of a, a theology that comes out, I think, more through the story of Joseph, but it's a different way to think about what God's presence and what God's blessing right. looks like and where it can be found, where we can see it. I really love that because, I mean, what has happened to Joseph is he's been betrayed by his brothers, thrown in a pit, presented <laughs> to his father as being dead, sold into slavery, and this ended is up really being bad. bought. This is like not a sign of blessing. No. No. That's absolutely right. And so if you interpret it simply at the level of what does it appear, you know, from a human perspective, it is Joseph's got a terrible, it's a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. And yet it's being interpreted as even in all of that, God is about prospering him. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, and I, I like your distinction about it doesn't say God intended for all of this to happen, but it does say that God is taking what happens and turning it toward prosperity in some way Mm -hmm. but it doesn't it also doesn't simply mean like joseph has a private jet and a massive mansion you know somewhere Mm -hmm. in texas no he's flying around i was really struck reading this it seems kind of obvious now i guess but just the fact that it starts out that someone bought joseph yeah like we're selling humans here that's what's happening yeah this is really a very low point. Yeah. Yeah. No airplanes. (laughs) (laughs) No airplanes. Yeah, exactly. So the person who purchases Joseph is Potiphar, who is described as the Pharaoh's chief officer in the CEB, commander of the Royal Guard, and an Egyptian. Like that's kind of an interesting Mm. threefold description of him. Do you have any thoughts about 
Potiphar, like how how we should think about him. Okay, I want to I want to put some more. I want to put something else in the mix to that, and Please. then see what we can sort of imagine for Potiphar. Yeah. Coming from the story of Joseph's brothers being so jealous of him that they throw him into a pit and you know fake his death, and for all they knew, he could have died in there. I mean, like that's. A little beyond typical sibling rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> a little beyond. Yeah. It seems striking to me that this is, I feel like this is a dumb observation. Potiphar's not jealous at all. Like he yeah. sees Joseph's success as an opportunity for him to make his life a little better. Yeah. And he'll take it. Yeah. I don't know if that's something about Potiphar's character and what exactly it would be. Or it's funny, like both, I both want to say like, well, the brother, the, I both want to portray the brothers negatively in their jealousy, but I also want to portray Potiphar negatively in his willingness to only pay attention to what he eats (laughs) (laughs) and just give all the work to Joseph. Yeah. But then that doesn't make sense either. Yeah. I don't know. Is, is Potiphar lazy or is he just willing to take the blessings that fall in his lap. Yeah, no, I think that's such an interesting observation. And I, you know, there's one, I'm of two minds and you've, you've said it really well. One of one mind is Potiphar is a very, you know, he's a nice guy. He's risen to power. He recognizes the gifts of others. He encourages Joseph in responsibility. Mm-hmm. He's not jealous of Joseph. Mm-hmm. He lets him basically have everything in his house and doesn't keep an account of it. Like that's a that's an amazing trusting person there. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you know, the the social dynamics here are such that Potiphar owns Joseph. And yeah. so everything Joseph does that is successful is ultimately Potiphar's success, right? He, yes. he everything is Joseph doesn't mm-hmm. have anything of his own. You're right. There's no real competition. Right. Because they are of such unequal status that Yeah. Joseph can't somehow overtake his supervisor. That's a really good point. Yeah. And so then I then it's a very negative, it's not negative, it's just practical. Like it is a system in which, of course, Potiphar is going to want Joseph to prosper because it, it all reflects well on him. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, Joseph here to me seems like he he's an Israelite in what is clearly an Egyptian setting. He's in the seat of power. It is said explicitly that Potiphar is an Egyptian, you know, Mm -hmm. the Pharaoh's officer, Mm -hmm. commander of the Royal Guard, and an Egyptian, in case you didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so it's setting up this kind of ethnic distinction here. And it seems to me like what's happening in this first part of the text is Joseph kind of understands where he fits in the social dynamic. He's not in the power position the way he's going to succeed is to do the best he can by the people who ha- are holding him in their possession. Whether that's mm-hmm. right or wrong, he doesn't seem to have a lot of judge. Like he doesn't seem to be making judgments about how he feels about that. Because He's- it doesn't matter how he feels about it. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I feel about the fact that the text presents it that way. Cause like, I feel like it does matter, but Joseph seems to have sort of figured out his place. You have thoughts about that? Can you help me there? No, I mean, I think that's really interesting. And the question didn't arise for me until a little bit later in the text. So it, we, it might circle, you know, it might yeah, bubble back it up for me again mm-hmm. later. But 
there is, at least in the, in the Jewish community, I think a tendency to read him here as being like a, really a model of morality and yeah. trustworthiness and yeah. industriousness. And, you know, you sort of keep your eye on the prize, you know, walk in the street path or whatever. And, you know, I have this question sort of all along the way, like, yes, that is true. Is it an issue of morality or is it an issue of he sees how the power structures work and he knows <laughs> that he can't overturn the apple cart or whatever it is, like that his interpretation of things is that his best bet is to mm-hmm. get his owner to trust him. Yeah. I don't know if the text really tells us, like if it gives us an answer to that question. Is this an issue of his uh, fantastic character or is it sort of world savvy? Yeah. I really like that, Amy. And it was reminding me of the conversation. I, I think it was last year we had on the podcast when we read Jeremiah 29 which says, seek the, seek the peace of the city where I have sent you for it. in mm. its prosperity is your own mm-hmm. prosperity. Mm-hmm. And this is written to people being forcibly taken from their homes and exiled in Babylon. Mm. And Jeremiah is saying, seek the peace of Babylon because only when Babylon succeeds will you succeed. And I think you very much can read Joseph this way as discerning that. The only way he's going to be successful is if he seeks the success of the people who have taken him in their mm. possession. And so it's a practical, I mean, one can read it as he's happy to be there, I don't, but there's nothing about that in the text, really. Right. But I, I think you can certainly read it. And, and it's repeated in the Hebrew scriptures as mm-hmm. figure out what situation you are in and the, the, way, the best way forward for you sometimes is to seek the well-being of people who are, whose interests overlap yours. Yeah. Find the areas of interest where you overlap. Yeah. That's a really interesting lens. I know we're not going to read the rest of the Joseph story in this year, but it's a really interesting lens to just sort of have in mind if you are reading the rest of the Joseph story later because his status really changes. Yeah. And to sort of, you know, have that as a as a background question. What are the options really that are available to this person? Yeah. The other thing that this conversation is making me like the conversation about God in the background and the conversation about the prosperity of Potiphar. Like, I think those are, there is also a message that is under under and within the text here about mm-hmm. the true source of the prosperity is God. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so while the empire might think that it is the one that is being prospered and that Joseph is serving the interests of the empire, in fact, I think theologically what's happening is Joseph is being loyal to God and therefore God is prospering him, which then ends up prospering Potiphar and the empire. Does that make sense? So how is Joseph being loyal to God in this? Well, that's a good question that you you have asked me. (laughs) Uh, Because it doesn't say, it says the Lord was with Joseph. And so I was just, I sort of had transposed that to say Joseph was, you know, walking in the ways of God like Noah did. But it actually doesn't say that, does it? It just says. It's not necessarily not true, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how to think about what's, motivating Joseph. I think that's important what you're saying. And I appreciate your calling that out because what it is clearly saying is that God is present with Joseph in his circumstance. And it is not, 
am interested in, at least at this moment, what Joseph has done in order to get God to be present with him mm-hmm. in his circumstance. It's simply God is present. And God is God is being faithful to Joseph. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Whether or not, right. That's important. I'm glad you got I'm glad you got me there. <laughs> this is not an important question. <laughs> there is I a, can't wait. There is an ambiguous pronoun in the CEB in verse six. He, that is Potiphar, handed over everything he had to Joseph and didn't pay attention to anything except the food he ate. I just I don't mm. like what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean? I I take it to mean can you even imagine as the father of two young children who also has a job and who also has a podcast and who also has all this stuff that the only thing the only decision you have to make the only thing you need to concern yourself with is what you put in your own mouth like I'm going <laughs> to have this cookie for lunch that maybe that'll amazing. make me feel bad later but it's my decision yeah. like just to it just feels totally like untethered from every other responsibility. And when you don't have any responsibilities, like when you're on vacation, what you're yeah. going to eat for meals becomes like, I mean, you could plan it for days where yeah. you're going to go for different dinners and like yeah. looking at the menus in advance. That's how I see it, that he was so just checked out from all responsibility because Joseph took over everything. Yeah, I love that. So Joseph is doing everything that needs to be done. So all Potiphar has to worry about is what his next meal is going to be. Not where it's going to come from, but just like- Right, but just like, what shall I choose? All the wonderful things. Do you remember, my wife and I talk about sometimes, do you remember in grad school, you used to talk about how you wish you could just take uh, like food rods and stick them in your belly (laughs) instead of having to like (laughs) think about what to eat and cook and everything, just like have a little port where you stick in. (laughs) I still have that problem. I I get hungry, but I find it tiresome. (laughs) Yeah, we talk about that sometimes too. Where it's like, okay, we're hungry. Like the meal time just keeps coming around every freaking day, three times a day. And like, wouldn't it be nice if you could just plug in for half an hour and like be recharged (laughs) and be done? So we talk about you periodically in our house. My current reason, my current solution to that, at least for myself and a little bit for family dinners, is just an off. Like I have the same thing for breakfast and pretty much the same thing for lunch every day and maybe five dinners that we rotate through. Yeah. Because that's kind of the way I go too. Yeah. (laughs) Because I don't care. Anything else we want to say about this introductory section of this text? I don't think so. So now we get the plot twist. Joseph was so good looking. (laughs) I paused in the middle of verse six. I couldn't quite decide where this next line went, but it's such a weighty line. It felt weird to end a section on it, so we'll start with it. CEB's translation. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Mm. What's the... You're in the the JPS. Yeah, the NJPS is the same. Well-built and Mm -hmm. handsome? That's fascinating. I don't feel like I've ever described anyone as (laughs) well-built. Like, that's just not a phrase that you use, really. Like, I know what it means, but like... Yeah, I mean... Yefe to are, what is that like? Beautiful of form and beautiful of appearance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was smoking. He was smoking. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so the, that becomes important because sometime later, his master's wife, that is Potiphar's wife, became attracted to Joseph and said, sleep with me. He refused and said to his master's wife, 
With me here, my master doesn't pay attention to anything in his household. He's put everything he has under my supervision. No one is greater than I am in this household, and he hasn't denied me anything except you, since you are his wife. How could I do this terrible thing and sin against God? Every single day she tried to convince him, but he wouldn't agree to sleep with her or even to be with her. One day, when Joseph arrived at the house to do his work, none of the household's men were there. She grabbed his garment, saying, Lie down with me. But he left his garment in her hands and ran outside. The plot thickens. (laughs) It does indeed. I had this, um, my AP biology teacher in high school, Mr. Thompson, may his memory be a blessing. He had this theory that... I don't know what the word to use, like gifts and talents or blessings or something like that were not evenly distributed among people, that they were wildly unevenly Mm. distributed and that Mm. the best looking people are also the really talented scholars and the talented athletes and the talented musicians and the and, and, and. I mean, I guess it's not always everything on one person, but this was his theory that uh, there are just some people who get everything And then some people who are poor schlubs who who don't. So we can assess the veracity of that theory at another time. But it may, (laughs) but reading like. Well, here is my thought. Okay. We'll (laughs) assess it now. This is my thought about that theory. (laughs) This is where my head literally went was when you said they, um, they get all of the best things, right? They're the really attractive people and they're the scholars and they're, and then you started listing other things. And I got stuck on the scholars because no offense to you or me or anyone. (laughs) Because we're definitely smoking. (laughs) But I have been to the Society of Biblical Literature meeting, and like being wildly attractive is not the strong suit of the Society of Biblical Literature. The American Academy of Religion, maybe oh so. Gosh. Bible scholars, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like. Well, <laughs> but I will. I will buy that attractive people are often quite winsome, and they often are very successful, and a lot of, they're very athletic. Like, a lot of things do seem to go together. And his theory was that because when people start to see any of these things, they fawn over the person, and then that Uh, changes their course of development and what opportunities they have, and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, that is what came to my mind. Because it seems, it's such a strange turn to go from the nature of the blessings that Joseph has enjoyed to that he was a good-looking man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the phrase in the CEB, sometime later his master's wife became attracted to Joseph. What is that, what is that in the... In My translation, the NJPS, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. That's closer to the Hebrew. It's lifted up her eyes upon Joseph, mm-hmm. which means became attracted to him, I suppose. But like there are other, she noticed there are other ways to read. Yeah. yeah. So I guess my question and I don't know, like, this is another of those questions that I like to ask, which is like, imagine, what is your imaginative world around this text? But do you have a sense, like, if you're trying to get in the head of Potiphar's wife, what her interest in Joseph is? Is it simply that she thinks he's attractive? Or what? what is it, do you think? Gosh, that's a good question. Uh, it's so weird. Like, I have all these weird, like, 
movie stereotypes of like falling in love with a gardener and, you know, yeah, whatnot. I mean, it could be, gosh, now I feel like I'm getting all like weirdly Freudian, but like he basically is doing all the, the functions that her husband used to do that he's not doing anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about what, how that could impact their intimate relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But or he's like the successful one. He's the one who's caring for the family yeah. now. He's the one who's doing all of the things. And you you can see how that would shift How that the could roles. shift things. Yeah. I like both of those interpretations, Amy. And you know, you know me, I'm not interested really in settling on one, but that the, the first thing you said was kind of an exoticization of of the foreigner yeah. or like lusting after the help, like some some kind of border crossing. Yeah that feels like risky and exciting. And and we see that trope, you know, play out in all kinds of different ways. I think that's an interesting way to think about it that maybe we'll want to hang on to. I really like what you were saying about, you know, Potiphar has kind of seeded his role now in the household. And so it it kind of makes sense that Joseph, who's doing all of the other things also would start to fill that role as well. One of the Bible Worm Collaborative folks raised a interpretation that I had never really thought about. And it's partly related to what Joseph says in verse nine, no one is greater than I am in his household. Mm. And that line that we were talking about before that uh, Potiphar maybe didn't pay any attention to anything except his food, that she was reading it as suddenly this Joseph guy is like the star, the new Mm -hmm. star in town. And she's jealous. Mm -hmm. Like she's trying to do something to either, you know, restore her own sense of self or to catch Potiphar's attention or like something like she, she's feeling ignored, not tended to. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. It is really interesting. And I had not thought of it in terms of, I wouldn't have used the word jealousy for it, but I definitely was thinking about the power dynamics at play, both, you know, in terms of what, between the three characters and what it would mean power dynamic wise for her to sleep with Joseph. Yeah. But the idea that she could have been jealous is really interesting because then in some ways it's like replicating the situation that he had with his father and his brothers, although in a very bizarre, with a weird sexual twist that I'm glad was not in the first part of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Because, you know, in verse nine, you also kind of hear echoes of that story when he says, no one is greater than I am in this household. Like that just sounds like a very quick version of that dream Joseph has in Genesis 37, where all of his brothers are bowing down to him, you know? Mm-hmm. So Joseph has sort of said, like, I'm the greatest in the household. He's, he's back to his old ways and this interesting sort of dynamic. I was just looking at the Hebrew because my translation is different, but I think that that is pretty faithful to the Hebrew, that no one is greater. Yeah. Joseph's response there is is interesting. My master trusts me. No one's greater than me. He hasn't denied me anything except for you because you are his wife. And then he says, how dare I sin, do this terrible thing and sin against God? How, how do you understand what Joseph, like what is the nature of his refusal? You know what I'm asking? Yeah. Like, what does he mean by all of that? It's this for me is where that question we were discussing earlier came up. 
Like, does Joseph say no because it's the wrong thing to do, because it's morally wrong, and because he really sees himself and he cares for his owner and, and you know, and being trustworthy is meaningful to him? Mm-hmm. Or is it that he knows that he has this really good situation right now, but it's kind of built on a house of cards, and mm-hmm. if he makes Potiphar mad, then, you know, he'll lose this relatively good life that he's built for himself. And it's mm-hmm. it's really hard. it's really hard to know. And then the inclusion of sin before God at the end of it, I'm like, yeah, is that the driver? Is that? There, yeah, there's relationship to Potiphar and relationship to God, and I can't, yeah, I can't tell which one is at the front. Can you tell? I think no. I mean, I think you've put that really nicely, and and I don't know either that the that it turns out. So I always read that verse thinking it's going to end. How could I do this terrible thing and sin against Potiphar? Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. doesn't. It's sinned against God. Mm-hmm. And so that leads me to sort of think like, okay, well, there's just certain ways, there's certain things we do to honor community and there's certain things we don't do to dishonor community. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whose community it is or who we're with. Like there's just certain things we don't do. And one of them is to sleep with someone else's wife. Like I, to me, that's the sort of theological interpretation is we are God's people. We conduct ourselves a certain kind of a way and that's the way I'm going to conduct myself. Mm-hmm. But I think it does have all of those implications you were talking about. Like maybe he is fond of Potiphar and would never want to do something like that to him. Certainly, I think he understands like this bit about I'm in a good spot, right? No one's better than me. He lets me be in charge of everything. Like He's definitely aware of how good he's got Mm -hmm. it and not wanting to mess it up. It is important, though. I'm realizing as you're talking, you know, I, I pointed out before that it didn't. Joseph hadn't said anything about God, but now he has. Yeah. He has, he, this is the first time yeah. here. Yeah. And it kind of comes a little bit out of the blue from him mm-hmm. to me. Like that, that he says that there is noticeable to me because he hasn't been processing things theologically as far as we know. Yeah. So Joseph refuses her. And then we get this, it reminds me a little bit of the Samson and Delilah story where there's just this like constant every single day she tried to convince mm-hmm. him. So she keeps saying, let's do this. And he keeps saying, no. And then finally, he arrives at work one day, and they're the only two. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which it's been the community around, like people would know what's happening that has kept Joseph safe. And then we get this scene. I mean, it's a sexual assault is what Mm -hmm. it is, but it's reversed of what we Mm -hmm. would typically expect, although, you know, sexual assault has all kinds of forms. Um, So she says, lie down with me. And I mean, maybe, I don't know. I, I sort of interpreted that sexual assault. Did I go, is that too strong an interpretation or... How would you, how do you read what happens right here? It's. I didn't have that language in my head, although it's certainly possible. I will sort of similar to what, what you were starting to say. I think, have I talk, talked before on the podcast about Beit Torah Ta? Not that I know of. It's this, it's a project coming out of Israel now, put together by a group of um, female scholars in Israel who are translating the entire Torah and flipping the genders. So any person mm. or non-person, because you know, every pretty much everything's gendered in Hebrew, they flip the gender of it just to just to see how it feels and how it changes our assumptions That's and how it 
Yeah. And so I so I did that reading this text. I like rewrote it as like it's not Joseph, it's Josephine who came to work and this happened. And like oh, how did the power dynamics feel to me then? And I'm so curious what the effect of that was when you when you read it that way. Like did it Well, let me here. I'm going to read you these just these two lines. Oh, yeah. yeah. With the with the genders flipped. One such day, Josephine came into the house to do her work. None of the household being there inside, her boss's husband caught hold of her by her garment and said, lie with me. But Josephine Mm. left her garment in his hand and got away and fled outside. That feels so different to me. It's crazy how flipping the genders. Yeah. So can you articulate how it feels different to you? Does it feel like more frightening? It does. To me, yeah. And it's more like I was hesitating about the language of sexual assault. But when you switch the genders, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that's exactly what that is. Like boss's husband grabs you. Like that's just such stark, like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Grabs you. And in order to run away, they wind up like pulling an article of your clothing off you and you run. Like that's. Exactly. It's scary. Scary. Mm hmm. So one of the things that I think I'm struggling about with this text is the Bible, as you well know, portrays women in all kinds of problematic ways. And women who are often the victims of sexual assault, not only the vic- not, not the only victims of sexual assault, but by and large. And here now we're getting a story where it's a woman, we finally get a woman who's a character in a story, and she's perpetrating a sexual assault against an Israelite man. And I've like, I just, I just want the story to be something else, <laughs> I think is what I'm feeling. Like, I don't want this to be the story, but it, but it is the story. I mean, I think that the connection that I see most clearly goes back to the conversation we were having about power. Like, sexual assault yeah. is about power, about asserting your power yeah. over someone. And for whatever reason, if it's coming from a place of jealousy or if it's coming from a place of, we have this servant <laughs> and this is what I want yeah. and I should be able to get it. And he does everything my husband wants. So why shouldn't I be able to do this or whatever, yeah. whatever power dynamic yeah. um, she's wanting to play out here. That, that to me is a, a clear connection to that. That would be present regardless of the gender roles in the story. That's right. I think what you're pointing to is the intersectionality of all of these things. And so there is a, gendered power dynamic there's also an an Mm -hmm. ethnicity power dynamic Mm -hmm. in this text and in the world that we inhabit Mm -hmm. here it's egyptian israelite and there is also socioeconomic status you know that secondhand man to the pharaoh and his wife and the someone who has been sold into slavery and all of those things are at play and to keep in our minds that abuse of power can function in any of those mm-hmm. intersections mm-hmm. and it power sort of rolls like abuse rolls downhill. Yeah. So if you're the, you know, the ethnic minority and the socioeconomically disadvantaged one here enslaved one, it's all going to roll toward you regardless of your gender um, in relation. I think that is all true. And I think it's worth, you know, us examining our own power positions and our, our own intersectionalities and how we, abuse our own. And yet I still wish this text were not, you know, I just wish that this woman were, were being portrayed more positively, but 
Oh, but there we go. Yes, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yes, there is the. It, it it fits into one of the biblical stereotypes of women, like that they're gonna they're gonna take down the upstanding man with their seductive efforts. Yes, you're, yes, you are absolutely right. In the connection of the wisdom, the Joseph story to the wisdom mm. narratives, which we've sort mm-hmm. of alluded to, mm-hmm. so Joseph is often thought of as kind of a, a narrativized version of Proverbs. Basically, this would remind us of the kind of one of the best known passages of Proverbs in chapter seven, where a sort of innocent young boy wanders out in the street and is seduced by a woman. And he ends up like in Shoal. I forget exactly. It's very dramatic. Uh, the lesson there is don't let yourself be seduced by another man's wife. I'm Joseph played. Wait, go ahead. No, I, no, no, no. I, t- I totally agree. And I'm so glad you said that because I had this question in my head that I, just sort of floating around in there. Why doesn't Potiphar's wife have a name? Oh. And thinking about her as this like Proverbs yeah. archetype. Yeah, the strange yeah, woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. makes that, I don't know, that that connection to wisdom just made that make a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Because, you know, the lesson of the Proverbs text is don't, if you are a man and you're in a world of seductive women, do not let yourself be seduced by a woman, especially a woman who is another man's wife. And if you do that, you'll be fine. That's the only rule. <laughs> That's the only rule. I mean, so whatever we think about all that, this text, which can be read as playing that mm-hmm. out, Joseph does exactly what he's mm-hmm. supposed to do. Yes. She is trying to seduce yes. him. He says, I can't do this sin against God. She tries again and again and again. He finally just runs yeah. away. He's done exactly right. But... As we'll, as we'll see as we continue on, it does not work out so well for him. Or what we're, yeah. Th- then that goes back to the first question that we sort of started with, like, what does it look like to have God's presence in your life? Yeah, yeah. But yes, it, it is it is not, not a plan that a person would write for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode. If you're a Bible Worm listener who has never tried any of our other Patreon offerings, we have a special deal for you this month. For the month of September, all Patreon subscribers from the Bible Worm supporter level and up can receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies, regardless of your subscription level. You can join at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 to receive these benefits for the month of September. At the end of the month, if you want to continue receiving these benefits, you can subscribe at a higher level. If not, cancel anytime. Visit patreon.com slash podcast for details on becoming part of Bibleworm's Patreon community. And now, back to this week's episode. So picking up in verse 13, when she realized that he had left his garment in her hands and run outside, she summoned the men of her house and said to them, look, my husband brought us a Hebrew to ridicule us. He came to me to lie down with me, but I screamed. When he heard me raise my voice and scream, he left his garment with me and ran outside. She kept his garment with her until Joseph's master came home, and she told him the same thing. The Hebrew slave whom you brought us to ridicule me came to me, but when I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment with me and ran outside. When Joseph's master heard the thing that his wife told him, this is what your servant did to me, he was incensed. Joseph's master took him and threw him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were held. So Joseph here does what he's supposed to do, or at least he doesn't do what he's not supposed to do. 
and he ends up in jail anyway. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like my my problems with this text continue on because now here we have a woman giving false accusation against a man and there's a whole there's a whole thing <laughs> going yeah. on there. But can you help me like how do I how do I start thinking about this text? You know, the first question I had, which maybe is kind of silly, but Potiphar's wife could have not done anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, it's not like she got caught and had to throw him under the bus in order to get out of something. Right. Right. And so the question is, why Why does she have such a big reaction? Like, why does she decide that she has to get Joseph yeah. in a lot of trouble? Is it because rejection is hurtful? Like, it could. Yeah. She wanted revenge, you know. She was embarrassed. If we're talking mm-hmm. about relative power or sense of our own power, then embarrassment is closely tied to, you know, a sense that now you've been diminished in relation to another person. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's just sort of more a, a more of a psychological or a softer psychological. I don't know what I don't know what I'm trying to say. Instead of saying mm-hmm. like this is about you know sex and the intertwining of sex and power, it's thinking about it more relationally. I really love that, Amy. And the way she interprets it after in verse 14, look, my husband brought us a Hebrew to ridicule us. Mm. And then she says it again in verse 17, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us to ridicule me came to me. And so after the fact, I think she is exactly processing it the way you're describing as she's been she's been embarrassed. She's been shamed. She's been rejected. By someone who shouldn't be able right. to reject mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Someone is of a lower social status than her, mm-hmm. however you want to talk about mm-hmm. that. And so this makes her like, she can't have that. I really like that, Amy. Mm. It's very clear here. Like she says, the Hebrew slave whom you brought us, uh, she says the same thing to the servant, the other men, a Hebrew slave to ridicule us. Like that, the ethnic. Mm. difference is like yes really forefront right Mm -hmm. here he doesn't belong he's a he's different than us of course he's dangerous of course he tried to rape me of course Mm. you know and the flip side of that like i can't believe i was rejected by someone like right no it's making me think of i i am i know embarrassingly little about caste systems but the little bit i do know you know, talks about how if if everyone stays in their assigned role, sometimes it can be okay <laughs> or peaceful. I yeah. shouldn't say okay. But if someone tries to, you know, like if if Joseph is supposed to be in a lower role in the mind of Potiphar's wife and he inverts that by refusing basically yeah. an order from her. Yeah. Yeah, there's this this extreme, extreme response. Yeah. And he had earlier said, I'm the most important person in this Mm -hmm. household. Yeah. He has said a few things that have created this kind of response. The Bible Worm Collaborative had a really rich and complicated conversation about this text, about this part of this text. And I, I wish I had recorded, I mean, I guess it is on a video someplace. But the essence of it was somebody was raising 
the issue of false reporting of sexual assault mm -hmm. and how disappointing it is that the biblical text is sort of engaged in that here. Someone else was pointing out the long history of, in the, in the U.S. anyway, of white women accusing black men of exactly this kind of thing in ways that, you know, got them lynched. Yep. And that, like, it's complicated all the way around. And this intersectionality of race, ethnicity, socioeconomics, you know, prejudice and all of those things. And so, like, on the one hand, I do wish we had more positive portrayals of women in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, like, this points us to a social reality, yes. not just one that has passed, but one that is still yes. present, that we really need to be aware of in our own Yes, that that is so context. well said, and that's so important. I'm really glad the collaborative raised that up. They are amazing, amazing. Now, we had talked a little bit earlier about the character of Potiphar, and you know, Potiphar hears the story. He doesn't seem to really ask any questions or do anything. He's enraged and throws Joseph in jail. And I, does that shape your understanding of Potiphar in any kind of a way? You know, I had been thinking of it just as sort of um, a kind of passivity. I mean, if, if Joseph had been his, his most trusted assistant, it just seems strange that there would be this immediate response. Mm -hmm. But thinking about it now in terms of, you know, the examples that you just raised up of, of false accusations that have been wielded against black men by white women and how quickly it seems in our society that biases we may not even have been aware that we had will take over and believe that story because at some level we are primed to believe that story is true. Yeah. And we're willing to go along with it for as long as it's clearly not true. But as soon as there's any indication that maybe, maybe it's true, it like it we just go so quickly back to that that old story that we have somewhere in our subconscious. And so now that you've mm -hmm. now that you've raised that issue, I don't know if I can uh I don't know if I can see this without that. Now, one question that I have is, what should Joseph have done mm. if he had not refused and had actually slept with Potiphar's wife? That would have gotten him in yeah. so much trouble. So he didn't do it, mm -hmm. and he went to so much, so much effort not to do it that he had to run away naked, and he still ended up getting thrown in jail. So I don't know. Like the message of Proverbs was – just like, don't mess with other people's wives. Yeah. Like, don't let yourself be seduced and it'll be fine. And here, at least at this moment, yeah. it appears that there was no possible way for Joseph to win in this situation. Is that how you read that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the key words, as you said, at this moment, there's no, there's no way to win. Like this is, I don't think there's anything else that, he, I don't think there's a better decision that he could have made. Maybe he could have not yeah. been quite so self-congratulatory in his first conversation <laughs> yeah. with her, but yeah. I don't know that that would have mattered. Yeah. And I think there's real truth to this too, that sometimes you, you're going to do the right thing and you're going to get punished anyway, because we yeah. live in a world with very complicated human 
power webs and biases and yeah. things that that we don't even know about and things that we have nothing to do with and we will get caught up in it at times and and we'll feel conse- yeah i mean we will feel the impact of it but i don't think there's anything else you could have done yeah i think that's exactly right and i just i mean implicit in what you're saying is and that is magnified depending on where you are in the yes. structures yes. of ethnicity yes. and money and power yes. and all of the things and if you are somebody in joseph's position an ethnic outsider uh, who is enslaved then there's nothing like you're just at the whims of the people who actually have this the power that's actually like i don't know if i had quite appreciated how much courage it would have taken for Joseph to run away. I mean, maybe he thought that Potiphar would believe him. Like maybe he didn't think it would turn out the way that it turned out. Yeah. But you're exactly right. When you are in a place in society where you have no cushion, you have nothing, (laughs) you know, all it takes is an accusation. And that's, you know, that's what happened here. All right, so we've alluded a couple of times to this idea that it appears that things did not work out for Joseph, and indeed he does find himself in jail. Picking up then for the end of the story, I'm right at the very end of verse 20. While he was in jail, the Lord was with Joseph and remained loyal to him. He caused the jail's commander to think highly of Joseph. The jail's commander put all of the prisoners in the jail under Joseph's supervision, and he was the one who determined everything that happened there. The jail's commander paid no attention to anything under Joseph's supervision because the Lord was with him and made everything he did successful. So here we find Joseph again. Like this is almost exactly the way the story began where Joseph had been sold into slavery and then prospered his uh, enslaver. Now he has been thrown in jail and rises to the like top of the jail because he also prospers the jail commander. What do you take of this kind of, this move at the end and its relationship to the similar move at the beginning? I mean, one thing that I think is maybe like a weird observation or maybe indicative of my moment in life, but that the expression of God's care is to give him responsibility. Yeah. You know, it's not like (laughs) he got, you know, an extra serving of stew every day (laughs) or he got, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. And like sort of power, although as we saw before, like that power can be pulled out from under him at any moment. Like it's, it's a very unstable power. Yeah. It reminds, well, it doesn't remind me. There's a, there's a book by John D. Levinson called the death and resurrection of the beloved son Mm -hmm. that the title I think intentionally is supposed to make us think of Jesus, but what it's actually written about, I mean, I think there is a Jesus part at the end of it, but it's looking at the the series of stories across the Hebrew Bible and then into the New Testament where this beloved son either comes close to death or is brought to the lowest of the low or actually is crucified in the case of Jesus only to be raised sort of to the highest of the high. And so, you know, the two sons who are chosen before Joseph, Isaac is almost sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Jacob is, his brother wants to murder him. He has to leave, you know, their home so that he doesn't get killed. And and so this is like the Joseph version of that. And it is a really different version. Maybe it's like yeah. the wisdom 
the wisdom version of it. (laughs) But he, he is continuously brought to the lowest of the low. And then somehow God enables, uh, rising up from that place. I love that Amy. And the, you know, there is a very simplistic Christian theology that floats around, which suggests that if one trusts in God, then everything will be fine all the time. And if everything is not fine all the time, it's because you don't trust in God. I love the way that you put that just now, that here it is that God is with Joseph from the beginning to the end of this story. And yet Joseph is first sold into slavery and then thrown in prison. Like, terrible Mm -hmm. things are happening to him, but it's not a sign of God's absence. And that what God's presence does for him is it enables him to prosper in the situations that he's faced with. I love that this example of, or this understanding of God's presence is here in this text and here sort of alongside the story of the Exodus and alongside, like, sure, great. Maybe there will be these big salvific moments for you, but if they're, if there aren't, it doesn't mean that you should stop looking for, you know, looking to sense some awareness of God's presence around yeah. you. Yeah. Now, Amy, I bet you think we're about to wrap up, but I, I have a, I have a curveball that I want to throw at Uh-oh. you. Oh, okay. And I want to see what we do with it. We talked about this line all the way back at the end of verse six. That is translated, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Mm-hmm. And you went back to the Hebrew and you saw Yefe Toar Vife Mare, and you said beautiful of form and beautiful of appearance. And the other place where that phrase is used, as you may well know, is Genesis 29, 17, where it describes Rachel, Rachel. who is Joseph's mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it is describing a woman who has like a shapely form or something like that. So in the Rachel version, the same words are translated, Rachel had a beautiful figure and was good looking. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. I don't know what we would make of it, but this description of this man is the same description that's given of his mother. There is also a a conversation about Joseph's long-sleeved coat that we talked about, Mm -hmm. which is a katonit pasim, which means like a, a... a coat that has sleeves that go down to the hands or something like that. The only other place in the biblical text that we see that phrase is in 2 Samuel 13, where it describes David's daughter Tamar wearing a katonit pasim. And then it says what the virgin princesses wore as garments. So there is a conversation, and I think this is an ancient conversation, maybe even going back to rabbinic texts, although you might have to correct me on that, that Joseph... It was gender nonconforming would be our would mm-hmm. be our contemporary language. Mm-hmm. He is being described in terms that normally would be descriptive of a woman, and therefore he is performing his masculinity in ways that are non-standard. Or he is—I mm-hmm. don't know quite how you want to like mm-hmm. exactly what language we would put around that, but gender nonconforming, sort of in a general sense. Do you make anything of that? And if so, does it affect your reading of this text in any way? I'm really glad you brought that up, and I wish I had thought about it before <laughs> we started, before we pressed record. Um, I have heard that theory before. I haven't thought about it in a long time. 
I don't know what it would have been like to be gender non-conforming in the ancient world. I don't know what it's like to be gender non-conforming now. I know a little more about it because I know people who can tell me. But based on what people tell me now in the modern times, it that possibility for me fills out the Joseph character in a way that makes makes things make sense in some ways. Like mm-hmm. his 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 ability at this point in the story to sort of attune to what to sort of let's see how how can i say this what i have found to be true of really the whole lgbtq community but certainly folks now who are gender nonconforming is that they don't expect they don't expect things to be in the box and so they have a a willingness to do hard things when they're important because they don't expect that <laughs> they don't, they haven't had a life where things have been so easy. Yeah. And so my experience of folks in that community is that there's a level of sort of courage and integrity that is sometimes hard for me to come by in like the cis straight white mm. community. So now trying to add that into thinking about Joseph's character, you know, and there are all these sort of power dynamics in play. And I don't know how Potiphar's wife would have interpreted his gender presentation. Like, I don't, I mean, that's just a whole other meta level, but just how Joseph would have responded to the situation. I don't know. That makes me imagine himself. That makes me imagine Joseph as someone who had really a pretty clear internal compass. Mm Mm-hmm. And without a lot of expectation that doing the right thing was going to be rewarded by the power structures in the world. Mm -hmm. I feel like I could sit with that question for a long time now. I really love that, Amy. I really love that. That, The other thing that I was thinking about for myself is it changes the story for me a little bit. Like the way we typically read it is that, of course, Joseph was like a man and and Potiphar's wife is a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And of course he wanted to sleep with her, but he like resists it. Mm. And and if you read it as with this gender non-conforming dynamic in there, then this, the emphasis of the story f- shifts a little bit to Potiphar's wife made assumptions about Joseph based on her interpretation of what a man should, how somebody mm-hmm. should perform masculinity. Joseph no interest in performing masculinity that way. And so her rejection is purely a product of her own assumptions about how he should be. So he's just kind of innocently being himself and she's created the whole attraction, the whole rejection, the whole everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a dynamic that still plays itself out in various ways with the trans community who are expected to perform gender in certain kinds of ways that when they don't, people interpret it as rejection. Mm-hmm. Even when there was no, nothing, like nothing happened. Right, <laughs> right, right. The whole thing happened in your head, yeah. Yeah, and so I just think this text kind of, if you read it that way, puts a point on sort of how vulnerable our trans mm-hmm. siblings and friends are and how much what happens to them can be beyond their control and totally in the minds of people who have certain expectations that are not met. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I don't know enough to quite know where all that goes, but I think this text 
read within the company of the right set of folks really could open up a whole world of of compassionate understanding mm-hmm. of of others. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so with all of that leads us to the question that we always ask at the end, which is of all the things we've op- we've opened lots mm-hmm. of possible avenues into this text, I think. Yeah. And the question of when you read this today and you're thinking about your own life, your own community, where is the text connecting to to today for you? I think that where it's landing for me right now is sort of in the middle of that whole soup of things, which is sort of going back to this idea that we talked about that there are almost innumerable social forces at play in any given moment. And some of them are for the good and some of them are definitely not. Some of them you're conscious of, some of them you're not. Some of them are between two people. Some of them are entirely in your head. There are so many of them that I think, you know, we asked at the beginning, why is Joseph behaving the way that he is? Is it because of his commitment to God or is it because of his commitment to Potiphar? I don't even know if Joseph would be able to honestly answer that question. Agreed. And I think in that, so there's that whole soup <laughs> of, of this story and of our lives today. And then holding sort of within that, the idea that God's presence can be felt in your life when things are all working out for the good. And when you, you know, have had some kind of uh, metaphorical death, you've been thrown into the pit. There's the verse two of this whole reading that we, that we did, that the translation I have is the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he stayed in the house of his Egyptian master. But in my um, Jewish commentary, it says the verse can also be read. The Lord was with Joseph when he was a successful man. And also when he stayed in the house of his Egyptian master. Oh, interesting. I think, I, I think that, that sort of like the impossibility of that and the openness of it and the vagueness of it sort of in the, in the presence of all this complexity that we've introduced to this text is the closest thing I have to a, to a light shining through it. Otherwise mm-hmm. it feels really, really rich and also really swirly. Like swirly. Life. Swirly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, my friend? Where are you? Where are you drawn in this week's text? I think that I am drawn in quite a similar direction. And, you know, reading it from my own particular social location, which is closer to Potiphar than it is probably to Joseph in this story. One of the things that this text is reminding me about is just to be observant about the way that power dynamics play out in my own relationships in my own community, who is getting put, who am I putting in a position where they can't win inadvertently in ways that I haven't fully considered, where whatever choice they make is going to end up being a bad choice for them. And how can I better look out for people who are vulnerable in the communities that I move in I think that to me is there's, I am constantly trying to do that work. I'm not very good at it, but I have become better at it the longer that I've been having conversations like this. 
And then for me, the other part that you were saying there, I think is exactly right, that, you know, in this text, God is with explicitly with the one who is not in any power position in any other way. God is faithful to God's covenants. And you could not tell from the outside who is who God is prospering or not prospering in this text. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with my work with Mercy Church and with Canvas community, like one of the temptations in a community like that one is to think that people who come from like my status to like share our wisdom or whatever with the community are the ones blessed by God. And we're trying to help out the, you know, poor downtrodden folks. And so, so very often the reality is actually flipped where it is quite clear that people coming into Canvas community from off the street are very much in God's presence and very much being blessed by God, even though the circumstances of their life wouldn't suggest it. And people like me are oftentimes, I don't know exactly, we're sort of manipulating our relationships with God in ways Mm. that serve our own ends. And so it does us a lot of good just to flip our assumptions about like, where does God enter into this text? And where does God enter into our world? And oftentimes it's not in the ways that it looks like it is at first glance. It's, it's something that's, that's deeper than that. So it's sort of the flip side of God is with you even when you're in a difficult circumstance. It is when you're not in a difficult circumstance, remember that God is also with the people who are in difficult circumstances, maybe in ways that, that um, you could learn from mm. and benefit from. You know, it's funny, you said something at the end that I thought you started a sentence and I finished it in my head differently. You said, you know, remember when you're in these difficult moments that God is with you, you can flip that. And I thought you were going to say that when you're not in difficult moments, God is still with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a, di- a different, a different yeah. lens to come out. But I also think for, in my own experience, and it's it is easier for me to get tied into all these worldly strategies and trying to manipulate things when I'm under the <laughs> illusion that I can, you know, when yeah. things are going well and, and, and to n- not be so aware of the presence yeah. of God as when I am low. You know, I am at my, at my core, a, a liberation theologian. And one of the things that liberation theology has taught is that God has a preferential option for the poor. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I thought what that meant was God prefers poor people to wealthy people. And what I have come to think as I have gotten older is that, in fact, God wants to be with people, but people who have access to money and power are often running away Mm-hmm. from God because we can find our security and our prosperity yes. and our validation in other places. And so it yep. ends up being that God is most present with the poor, not because God wishes to be present only with the poor, but because we who are privileged don't wish to be in, in relationship with God. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in that. So next week we are going to be at the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. Mm. Which seems like a long jump from here, but that is what, all it, right. that's what it is. It's a great text. It's a I'm good looking text. forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, um, I look forward to it. All right, Amy. See you next time. Bye. Bye. 
for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the story of God leading the Israelites across the Red Sea as told in Exodus 14, 5-14 and 21-29. Until then, keep on digging.